I stand before you to officially launch my campaign for a second term as President of the United States. All those you've been knocked down, counted out, left behind, this is your campaign. Welcome to the Swing 2020. In the most uncertain year in modern history, the only predictable thing about American politics is the unpredictable. This election is no horse race. Crisis management is on the ballot. It's the incumbent Donald Trump and Vice President Joe Biden vying for the White House. But this isn't just a vote for Commander-in-Chief. It's state houses, rural congressional districts, powerful governor's mansions, and bellwether Senate seats. It's prosecutors, sheriffs, and superintendents. And the results will reveal the pulse of the American people. The swing, searching for the heartbeat of a nation, is counting us down to November 3rd. Here are your hosts, Chris Baccia and Emmanuel Berbari. Hello and welcome to the Swing 2020, 40 days away as we move closer to November 3rd, 2020 Election Day. I'm Chris Boccia, he's Emmanuel Barbari, and we welcome you to our podcast where we are bringing everything to you from the campaign trail, all of the updates and the developments. And this time we come to you with something bigger than I think any of us could have imagined. This was probably the biggest shoe to drop. It is the death of a Supreme Court Justice. Ruth Bader Ginsburg died on Friday of complications from pancreatic cancer. And of course, the death of the Associate Justice, the notorious RBG, the legend of the law that she was um, to so many progressives and to so many Americans. Um, But the death of Justice Ginsburg, of course, opens up a political fight that I I don't know any of us could have imagined. the magnitude of it is enormous, the gravity enormous. But Emmanuel, first, the legacy of Ruth Bader Ginsburg to get us started, just the significance of her death and, and her life. Chris, I think it really resonated to me how many people hung in the balance on what Ruth Bader Ginsburg meant and what she would continue to mean to the Supreme Court. And there are so many people I've met, there are so many people I've talked to who were just such big Ruth Bader Ginsburg fans and really hung on the fact that they had a stronghold on the Supreme Court, someone who who truly represented their interests and really represented where the country was going. And Chris, like you mentioned, as if the year 2020 couldn't handle enough. Now in this politically divisive time, this politically charged time where everybody has to get a word in. You're not only dealing with the death of a legend and trying to process all of that and what it means for the country and the sorrow that comes with it, but you're dealing with an immediate aftermath and an immediate rush to fill the seat, which is going to create a war. And that is not an understatement, a political war in the coming months, not only ahead of the 2020 election, but a fight to make sure that that seat is either filled or stays open for the next president. And it is something I don't believe the country is prepared for, especially in these turbulent times. I couldn't agree more. And I I think um, 
if you look at Justice Kavanaugh's confirmation process for any sort of a, of comparison, his was the most uh, divisive uh, that you could have imagined. Um, it it absolutely put this country uh, at at a, at a cultural fissure that that I've never seen. Um, this will do the same. There is no question about it. Um, you're talking about a court that was balanced for a long time. And it now stands to, at a very high chance to move to a six to three conservative majority um, if, if Justice Ginsburg is replaced by a conservative jurist, which is going to be, of course, the effort of the Senate Republican Conference and the White House. If they can pull that off, you're talking about a court that moves six to three, a court that stands a chance of rolling back something like Roe v. Wade, um, which has been Supreme Court, which has been judicial precedent um, in this country um, for all of the 50 states now for more than 30 years. The significance of that is, is, is enormous, and it makes it an immediate issue for voters in 2020. Roe versus Wade goes to the ballot. Lots of social issues go to the ballot. Um, but there's just a lot of political jockeying here. And I think the first question, Emmanuel, is when do the Republicans decide they want to move forward with this process? The confirmation process takes time. And I don't, I even believe Republicans who are committed to getting a conservative jurist on the court will still be committed to going through that process, having hearings on the Senate Judiciary Committee. We're going to see that. It's going to get ugly. Uh, but we're going to see that. And when we do, I wonder when a final vote happens and whether Mitch McConnell, who, by the way, and I may be skipping some steps here, has asserted that he will um, nominate uh, and he will hold a vote on his Senate floor, the leader of the Republican conference, the Senate majority leader. The question is when, when does he want that vote to happen before November 3rd or before January 1st, when a new Senate uh, will be sworn in. And Chris, let's get this on a table off the bat. We don't want to hear about the hypocrisy of either political party because it exists on both sides. You'll hear so much now, oh, the Republicans wouldn't confirm Merrick Garland back in 2016 when President Obama put him forward and was seen as a favorable justice for both sides to be able to swallow. And in an even longer period before the election, they didn't even put him to a vote or didn't even entertain the possibility of Merrick Garland. But at the same time, in 2016, you had Democrats saying, it is the Republican duty. It is your duty to put forward a justice and confirm that justice. Now you hear Republicans saying the same thing, and you see the Democrats going after the opposition party. So on that hand, these parties are interested in what gives them the most power. And they are going to seize the moment when the power is theirs. So before anyone goes into, he said this, she said this. This party should be doing that. Does the party in power deserve to wield all the authority? Should the opposition party ever confirm the opposite party's justice? Enough. <laughs> that should not be the conversation here. The conversation should be how long it takes to get this thing done. And in a politically divisive and the most divisive nomination process we've seen in Justice Kavanaugh, it took 89 days. We are 40 days from an election. Gorsuch, who was a much less divisive process, 66 days. So still a process that would go past November 3rd. 
have there been quicker processes that have been earlier than 40 days remaining until the election? Sure, but that is very unlikely given the divisiveness of the political climate. So do the Republicans view it as a situation where, look, there are 40 days until the election. Let's give our base something to vote on. Let's give them a Supreme Court nomination to vote on and then still push it through in a lame duck session. That may be very politically savvy, especially with several close wing Senate races. Or do they get it done before the election and appeal to the base saying, you gave us this constitutional right, we did our job, and then take the power at all costs? It's a very interesting question. It's a balance. But right now, Chris, as you were alluding to, the power is in Mitch McConnell's hands because he has enough votes. He has enough bodies on board that he can get this thing done. And that was in question for a while. Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, a couple of the senators who have already said they would not be in favor of a vote in an election year. But Mitt Romney, who voted to convict Donald Trump, has said he would consider the nomination. They're at 51 votes right now, and there's nothing the Democrats can do about that. Let me say this on hypocrisy, and I, I hear you, um, that hypocrisy is everywhere in politics. You can't look left or right, up or down, anywhere without finding it. Um, it is the very nature of when you're in power, what you might do, and when you are not empowered, what you might do. But there were some very specific words from Republicans at the time when they decided to hold up the replacement to Antonin Scalia's seat. Right. That was in February with plenty of time to get the process done. Um, and, you know, in a time where they decided not to take up their constitutional duty of advice and consent to the president's nomination for the Supreme Court, which President Obama did deliver to them in Merrick Garland, uh, a court of appeals judge. Um, they, you know, Lindsey Graham at the time, who now chairs the Senate Judiciary Committee, said that they were establishing a precedent. He made that very clear. And he said, so use the tape, it, use the tape. Is, he said, run the tape, roll the tape. And they are rolling the tape. Um, I agree with you that it doesn't really matter. They can roll the tape as much as they want. Republicans have the votes. They've got 51 votes. They could even survive this process with 50 votes with a Vice President Pence tie-breaking vote. So they're going to get the conservative jurists uh, that they want. I think the question of when becomes very interesting. And you mentioned the three, Collins, Murkowski, they both said they're not going to do it. Uh, they're not going to vote for... Um, you know, they're not going to give an up vote to a potential justice, but Mitt Romney probably will. And this to me is consistent with who Mitt Romney is. He's a conservative um, and he's especially a social conservative and a religious conservative. So it doesn't surprise me to see Mitt Romney do something that absolutely furthers the cause of conservatives. Um, Corey Garner's a name in Colorado, Martha McSally in Arizona, Tom Tillis in North Carolina. They're all running reelection races in swing states but they are getting behind the idea of nominating President Trump's nominee to the high court. What this has a lot to do with, and similar to the, the Romney point, is that you're going to energize conservatives right now. This is going to energize conservatives who are otherwise um, not enthusiastic about President Trump. I think this also energizes liberals who are otherwise not enthusiastic about a Joe Biden who they view to be too moderate. This is something that stokes almost every emotion that Americans already had, and there were a lot about this election, and makes this a lot about conservatives and liberals who are at the polls 
perhaps so much that they are, don't see the appeal in their own party's nominee. And now all of a sudden, this election becomes very important. If you're a, a liberal Democrat, a social liberal Democrat who sees Roe versus Wade um, at risk of extinction, of it, being endangered by a potential six to three conservative court, you are absolutely going to the polls in 2020. And this gets rid of the whole notion that the Bernie Sanders wing of the party is what's going to cost Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election. I don't think it ever was going to be the case. And now it's definitely not going to be the case because what progressives know at this stage of the ballgame is if there's any hope as we approach November 3rd of that justice not being confirmed or if it hasn't been confirmed yet and the early voting process already underway in a lot of these states, they know there is something to vote for. There is a Supreme Court pick on the ballot. There is Roe v. Wade and many other norms on the ballot. So Joe Biden will get a lot of those people to come home into his camp if he wasn't already. As you mentioned, Chris, President Trump is going to get a lot of those Republicans who maybe would have considered Joe Biden or would have stayed home. They're going out to the polls. So if there's any doubt about the turnout of this election and stoking the political divide to such an extent where it's literally going to be a matter of which party turns out more, that's been put to bed because everyone has something to vote for at the current moment. Back to the point, and I think this plays towards the politically divisive time we live in, Harry Reid was one of the main reasons why justices are confirmed now on a 51-49 basis, and you do not need that 60-vote supermajority in order to confirm justices. And President Obama himself said, elections have consequences. And I think that quote rings true so much more now than it ever did, because the American people, whichever side of the political spectrum you're on, elected President Donald Trump. And it's part of his constitutional duty to put these justices forth. So however that ends up resulting, whether it's two justices, three justices, four or five, if he gets a second term. That's because of the American people's decision to put these people in those positions of power. So I think there's blame to go around a lot. And even Mitch McConnell said back when Harry Reid pushed that and made it so it was a 51 vote majority to confirm the justice. He said, you will regret this. In time, you will regret this. And now the Democratic Party is regretting it. So I think there's blame to go around on a lot of sides. And so a lot of the principle that you see in politics just just appears to be gone and wherever it may have existed. And, you know, I don't know if it's a nostalgic memory that some people have about a time when politics had principle and where there was some bipartisan consensus about a process. Democrats are now going to use the tactic of we're going to pack the court in a Joe Biden presidency. And this is something that the nominee himself, the former Vice President Joe Biden, has stood in long opposition to in his Senate and vice presidential career. And it's something that even as the nominee, he's reluctant about. So I don't know that that's actually going to happen. I don't know that it's possible, but the Democrats are going to use it as a scare tactic. And in a six to three scenario, I wouldn't be shocked if they tried to do it in 2021 with Joe Biden as president, because the influence of a six to three conservative court is hard to wrap your head around. It is a huge deal 
it can shape policy in the country for decades and generations. Um, and whether or not it represents where the American people are, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It, it often feels like the when new justice is coming in and out is a matter of luck. President Obama got two nominations, or he got three nominations, two confirmations in eight years. President Trump has the very high chance of getting across three justices in just four years. So crazy. That will shape the odds of that are are very low. But uh, and one thing that I I think I'm fairly clear eyed about is that and the timing of it, I'm not sure, but they are going to get this justice. I I, I am not sure the scenario. Democrats are talking a big game. Um, the Speaker of the House is talking about the quivers, uh, it, the arrows in her quiver. Yeah, I don't know that they have that many. I, I really don't. I, I don't know how you hold it up when there are 51 Republican votes to get a conservative and the conference is united on that. Let, let's talk about the um, potential names. And President Trump says he will nominate um, his replacement for Justice Ginsburg on Saturday. Amy Coney Barrett appears to be the favorite for this seat. She was on the shortlist for Brett Kavanaugh's seat. Barbara Lagoa from Florida is on this list. Coney Barrett is 48. Lagoa is 52. They're both women. They're both Roman Catholics. They both sit on the U.S. Court of Appeals, though in different circuits. Um, These are two jurists that would be hard to reject the qualifications of them. They they do sit on the federal bench right now. Um, Barrett was nominated by Trump um, to the federal bench already. And at the time when he nominated Kavanaugh, it may have seemed too quick of a promotion, but now it seems like she's in line um, to take over. And she is absolutely an originalist. Um, she's absolutely a conservative jurist. Um, and, uh, you know, not to uh, beat the issue down, but her hearings are going to be very much about Roe versus Wade, if I had to guess. She's going to have to walk a line on Roe versus Wade. And that question is going to have a lot to do with her judicial philosophy about precedence. You see judges and you saw, you would even see Chief Justice Roberts asked about his philosophy on precedence when he was nominated by George W. Bush so long ago now. And he's somebody who really believes firmly in precedence. And you can actually read that in some of his opinions on abortion. Is a potential Justice Barrett on his page with precedence when it comes to Roe versus Wade from 1973. We, we don't know that about Justice Kavanaugh or Justice Gorsuch. I have an idea that Justice Alito and Justice Thomas are probably both, um, they're, they're far to the court's right. Chief Justice Roberts has asserted himself as the court's middle, but you now add a third unknown, a third unknown conservative on something like Roe versus Wade if you're talking about a Barrett or Lagoa, and who really knows what happens? Who knows how that unfolds? Certainly Senate Democrats will try to figure it out. They'll try to pick the brain of an Amy Coney Barrett if she is the nominee. So Chris, let's play this game for a moment. You talked Mm -hmm. about packing the court before, and I think that has a danger to Democrats in terms of the independent swing voter and how they see the court five, 10 years from now. You may drive up liberal turnout, but you may alienate some people that you need to gain. Let's talk about the justices in terms of electoral appeal. It seems like Amy Coney Barrett is the front runner. And if I had to put money on someone, 
it would be Coney Barrett at the end of the day to to get the nomination and ultimately get confirmed. As you said, the Democrats are talking a big game, but the Republicans have the votes. And whenever they want to vote on it and whenever they're able to get a vote, if it's before January and maybe after January, if they retain their majority in the Senate, she will ultimately be the next justice. But in terms of electoral appeal and not only appealing to the conservative base that's likely to come back into Trump's column, if there was any doubt initially, swing state appeal. And someone like Lagoa, who is from the state of Florida, highly respected within that state, a Hispanic potential justice, in a demographic that President Trump has taken major margins from since 2016 and has seemed to chip into in every major poll that's been released in this election year. President Trump is already liked in the state of Florida, although it's always a toss-up and it's always a very competitive battleground state. He has a rally in Florida on Friday. We know the showman that President Trump is. If he wants to accomplish two things in one selection, and Lagoa is considered to be a highly respected and very confirmable selection, he may do a double whammy and pick Lagoa, appeal to a certain demographic in this country, a demographic he needs in a 29 electoral vote swing state, and ultimately wrap up a few things, which is not only a legacy that includes three justice picks, three justice confirmations in his first term, but maybe a second term by appealing in the state of Florida. And it's worth mentioning that the, the new oldest justice, the most senior justice on the Supreme Court is Stephen Breyer. Justice Breyer is 82. Um, you know, I'd imagine that he could make it through another term, whether or not he wants to, I don't know, but um, he may have to, he have to may try to do what RBG did, which was to hold out another presidential term, a Republican term. Um, but, Justice Thomas is 72, Justice Alito is 70. So this is adorable um, conservative majority on the court. You're talking about one that could last a while. And then, of course, the the next two, which is Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, are young. And a potential third would also be young. Uh, Coney Barrett is 48, Lagoa 52. So let, let's look. Look at this angle, because Lisa Murkowski, she comes out and says, I, and she's, of course, a Republican from Alaska. She says, I will not, um, I will not give an up vote to, or not necessarily I won't give an up vote, but I do not support this process moving forward um, before election day. And of course, she defected from the president's column for Justice Kavanaugh. Her coalition in Alaska is a really interesting one. She won her reelection campaign as a write-in candidate in 2010. She lost that election. She lost a primary election to a Republican. And she still won that Senate seat as a write-in candidate, as a third-party candidate. She was just the second person in U.S. Senate history to be elected to the Senate as a write-in candidate. She won that election with independents, large numbers of women, Democrats. So she is the quintessential moderate Republican. That, of course, is her angle. So she represents in large part what a swing voter in America might look like. And we're always trying to uh, locate that on the podcast. Now, women and independent voters, as those potential swing voters, we, it's really early to have polling on this, but 
they maybe don't want to see a conservative jurist who could potentially take down Roe versus Wade. This is something that may get at swing voters. Do they want to see a six to three court? Do they want to see such a conservative court that might take down Roe versus Wade? There, there are independents in this country, and, and, and I don't have the polling information, but who, who, who do not want to see established law for so long and what I think you said earlier is sort of a social norm at this point, be struck down. It would be, um, it would be of massive uh, cultural, uh, it would be a massive cultural earthquake if Roe versus Wade got taken down. Does that motivate independent voters? Does that motivate women? Does that motivate um, people who find themselves in the middle in 2020? I, I think it may, I think it really may. And Chris, I think this answers our question that we've been driving home a lot throughout our podcast series, which is turnout in this election. And regardless of where these various angles we've laid out over the last few minutes drive the voter, it's certainly going to drive up turnout. There is no doubt now about the gravity and the divisiveness and ultimately what it's going to take for Trump or Biden or even down ballot candidates to win in the year 2020. And they are going to have to broad, broaden their appeal because it's going to take, I don't think there's any doubt, north of 70, 75 million votes to win the presidency. And these are questions we don't have polling on. We don't exactly know, but they're questions worth raising because there are people who get out for these reasons. And I think it's a chief reason why a lot of people get out to vote. Because yeah. they may not like the candidate on a four-year-in, four-year-out basis. They, actually, they don't like the candidate a lot of the time. What it comes down to is preserving the values they hold dear and not jeopardizing what works for them, their family, their, their safety, their health, their welfare, all these different aspects that people rely on for survival. So this will be a turnout election. There was no doubt about it entering right. this podcast, and this is even more sure after this podcast. And I think that's actually a perfect transition into what we want to talk about the remainder of the show, which is voting rights and, and who will be able to cast that sacred ballot. Because it has such a stake in this election, um, you have to wonder how Republicans will decide to time a potential vote. I would imagine they're going to get this process begun as soon as possible because this is a race against the clock until power shifts. But it's worth noting that power doesn't shift until January 1st. That's when a new Congress is sworn in. So they have that time on their side to some extent. It's not a lot of time. So they have to get the process started. But they may be well advised. And I think this is why they've been unclear about this to wait until after a November 3rd election because they can hold up, President Trump can hold up this conservative jurist that he wants to replace the notorious RBG with. And that can be something he can get people out to the polls for, even though, um, and we're really trying to cut through the noise here on the podcast, they're going to get this jurist one way or another, barring the unforeseen, which I shouldn't say is unlikely. The unforeseen should be expected. But um, in all likelihood, they're going to get this justice. So I, I think it should be, in, in theory, by that theory, it should be more of a motivating, um, it should be more of a motivating quality for Democrats, because the idea of four more years of President Trump, you have the potential of an even further right court 
finally, let's let's wrap up with um, some voting rights issues, like you referenced. Um, you're talking about cases in Pennsylvania and Maine that are of great significance, and we're keeping our eye on, of course, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin as it relates to their ability to process absentee ballots and be able to start counting them before election day. In all three of those swing states, they cannot do that, um, which is of great significance. There's the issue of the naked ballot, Emanuel, which is happening in Pennsylvania, where you're seeing votes without a double envelope. The double envelope meaning you put your ballot in an envelope inside of the envelope that gets sent in the mail. And those ballots without that second envelope will not be counted. This is really significant. In Maine, the, uh, the Maine High Court confirming ranked choice voting, meaning that the idea of voting for a third party candidate becomes less significant in a state like Maine. It becomes the first state of the 50 to approve something like this. So reaction to two, uh, two decisions, one that goes for Republicans and one that goes for Democrats. Chris, Pennsylvania, we've been talking about as a potential tipping point state this entire podcast series and there are several articles out today and some of them are speculatory some of them are just backed up with quotes and facts that are calling this the new florida 2000 scenario because because you have naked ballots which are basically the new hanging jets and there are going to be several thousand disenfranchised voters just on the basis of not being properly educated on how to vote. And let's keep in mind, the mail-in balloting process is a newer process. Not everyone is properly educated on how to successfully cast a mail-in vote, and that number is skyrocketing through the roof this year. A lot of people just don't have the time, the inclination, the energy to read all the instructions on the envelopes that are sent to them. They don't care if, if they fill out the ballot and they probably think it's an extra envelope. They're going to send it back in one envelope and hope that it's processed. There are election officials that are projecting if this law that disqualifies naked ballots had been used in the Pennsylvania June primary election in which they were counted, upwards of 40,000 voters in the Philadelphia area, which is a reliable democratic area that they look to drive up turnout in every election, upwards of 40,000 ballots would have been disqualified. They're projecting for November, just due to the naked ballot issue, upwards of 100,000 votes statewide could just be tossed because voters aren't properly educated on how to properly file their ballot. So for reference, Trump won Pennsylvania in 2016 by 44,000 votes. This could be a deciding margin. It's also going to be the subject of massive litigation after November 3rd, because there's going to be the question of what counts, what doesn't count. And also it'll be amplified by the fact that the ballot processing law has not been changed in Pennsylvania and these votes cannot be counted and processed for that matter until November 3rd. And it's likely a week's long process. So I think Pennsylvania being the tipping point is of utmost significance this year because this will be the most litigated state because they have not gotten their act together and they also ruled on a law that's going to disenfranchise thousands of voters. There had been Democratic Party wins, for that matter, in Pennsylvania. Signatures are no longer the deciding factor of whether a mail-in ballot is tossed. So for every 
naked ballot rejection, there is a signature win where a matching signature no longer is of utmost importance in casting a mail-in vote. So there are balancing factors, but there also are disenfranchisement measures. And to go to your main point, Chris, I think the ranked choice voting is something that's a fascinating concept. Probably won't be adopted in every state very quickly, but could have significance in a second district that's a swing district and ultimately went to President Trump in 2016. If someone votes third party, they're no longer scared of their major party candidate losing. Their second choice will be counted if no candidate reaches 50% in outright majority on the first round of voting. So their second choice could be Joe Biden if they voted third party. And then President Trump could lose Maine's second district, which ultimately could decide the election if it's a very close race. So that's why these lawsuits happen. They're very much along party lines. Republicans suing in Maine because of ranked choice voting that they did not want for the sole purpose of the second district. And Pennsylvania Democrats getting their way on all but one case, but that one case being naked ballots tilt the scales in November. And so the election may become a Supreme Court election. It may become a social issue election. All of this worth keeping our eyes on, especially as the Senate begins a process on the new nominee. And I imagine that gets started as soon as next week. We didn't even mention that there's a debate coming up. That's in only seven days as of our recording. So by the time we speak to you next, we will have a presidential debate in the books. The topics for that debate have been announced. Six topics, and they include the records of the candidates, the Supreme Court, they include COVID-19, the economy, race and violence, election integrity. That's Chris Wallace. He'll host that September 29th, and we'll break it all down for you. So as we enter this final stage, there is really no more room to breathe. This is going to be breakneck speed from here until Election Day. We only meet with you three more times after this, 30, 20, and 10 days until Election Day on November 3rd for our 40-day episode of The Swing 2020. He's Emmanuel Barbari. I'm Chris Bonchu. We thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.